Attention, this is not legal advice. If you are experiencing a legal emergency, contact an attorney or your local public defender's office. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of Gin and Justice. talk about justice hey i'm justine and i'm amanda welcome to a legal brief with gin and justice guys i have some exciting news tell me so do you remember our friends from leap yes the wonderful program for ladies Mm -hmm. who teach them to become entrepreneurs among many other things that leap does the what's it called the shark bite shark shark tank the shark tank style competitions yes yes So they are having another class and they have asked us to share and try and get the word out. So any ladies who are justice involved or formerly incarcerated, you can fill an application to see if you can get in the class. It is free. And I'll read the description because they word it much better than I do. So they are having their upcoming Virtual Entrepreneurship Academy to women who are formerly incarcerated or justice involved. This is a free 12-week course that meets twice a week for three hours. Very doable. Participants will learn how to write a business plan, how to operate, market, and manage a business, and how to present their business ideas to family, friends, and future investors. Amazing. Very. I need that class. At the end of the course, ladies will participate in a formal pitch competition, which is what you were just talking about, before a panel of successful entrepreneurs who stand ready to help launch their company. So cool. Very cool. Uh, so we will be sharing the information on our social media. And if you are looking for an application, I have that. So you can reach out to uh, myself, Justine at GinAndJusticePodcast.com, and I'll send you the application that they sent me. Their first class begins on March 1st. So... Coming up. Think about it, but don't think too long and reach out, get the information. And if you have any questions, you can reach out to us and we can direct you towards Leap. Or if you're in contact with Leap, uh, you can ask them as well. Definitely highly recommended. Yeah. Also, leave us a review. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we appreciate the reviews that are coming in. But if you enjoy the stories we share, which... I may be biased, but I think we share a lot of really awesome stories. Yes, of a lot of really awesome people. Yeah, we promote a lot of really very cool organizations that are doing amazing, incredible things in the criminal justice world. And we want more people to hear about them. Yes, so people actually know what's going on in the real criminal justice system and not what's on Law & Order. (laughs) Right. Amanda inserts eye roll here. (laughs) But really. And so, you know. Yeah, leave us a review. So it's Black History Month. It is Black History Month. And as we mentioned last week on our 50th episode, you cannot talk about the criminal justice system without getting into the racial disparities that Mm -hmm. come along with it. You guys have heard me talk time and time again about The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And Amanda, I went to the bookstore yesterday and they had a table set up for Black History Month. And there was the 10-year anniversary edition of The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Highly recommend. If you have not done so, please read that book. Michelle Alexander is a legal scholar, world-renowned. 
and she lays out the exact path of the end of slavery, the end of the Jim Crow era, and how it segues into the the, uh, laws that we have now. And And how they're policed. Right. And the disproportionate numbers that you see affecting the black community, black and brown communities, uh, but especially the black community. Just to kind of add into that, I have an old research paper that I did where I could tell I've been interested in criminal justice for a long time. <laughs> but essentially, I talked about the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. And, and Michelle Alexander, actually, in her book, focuses on the war on drugs being the prime avenue of how we got to this place of mass incarceration, which is, you know, crazy corrections budgets and crazy amounts of people in prison. And so I just kind of want to talk a little bit about the war on drugs because it directly relates to the racial disparities that we see in the criminal justice system, whether it's in sentencings, whether it's in the way that laws are executed, whether it's, you know, the way they're enforced or whatnot, where they're enforced. So back in the 1960s, which is, you know, right after civil rights or during the civil rights era through the 1980s, there was a huge boom in drugs like heroin, cocaine, crack cocaine, and the increased availability of these drugs led to a widespread drug use that ranged from poor urban areas to white upper-class homes. While as many of us know, cocaine was glorified by rock stars such as Janis Joplin and the Rolling Stones, as well as the underground hippie culture. So everybody, and in between, everybody was on drugs. So an epidemic of drug abuse combined with the media frenzy fired up by none other than the federal government was enough to attempt to stop the problem by creating programs for prevention and treatment. So the agency that was responsible for these programs was the White House Special Action Office for Drug Abuse Prevention. It was actually created by President Nixon, surprisingly, in 1970. So this agency mainly focused on education, prevention, and treatment surrounding substance abuse. This is back in 1970. So this was like progressive for that time period. Within three years of this opening up, the rate of heroin use had actually rapidly decreased. However, by the 1980s, with cocaine and crack cocaine on the rise, the federal government felt the need, quote unquote, felt the need to increase drug policies. So, When Reagan took over, at the beginning of the decade, he made it very clear that there was to be no tolerance for drug use within the United States, uh, abandoning abandoning any ideas that focused on treatment. And by 1982, President Reagan had declared a war on drugs, which we know now is tremendously failed, but is still going on Mm -hmm. (laughs) for whatever reason. So the war on drugs led to the implementation of several policies that require dramatic increases in federal, state, and local funding in order to combat illegal drug trade, which, by the way, the CIA was participating in. Mm -hmm. That's also a known fact. That's not a conspiracy theory. (laughs) The funding priority led to reduced budgets that accounted for prevention, treatment, and education. And so they slashed the treatment budgets essentially and increased enforcement budgets and then for instance the national institute on drug abuse which was an agency focused on prevention was left with only about a quarter of the budget after the war on drugs was launched so they got slashed down to 25 percent of their budget funding was also slashed for the department of education's drug abuse education programs cutting them from 14 million to only 3 million 
Funding was distributed to various levels of law enforcement agencies to stop the flow of illegal drugs in the United States. And so that's really the premise of where the war on drugs started and where this really the militarization of police came from was from these the funding shift from not a police society to, Mm -hmm. you know, where we're at today. During the 1980s, the illegal drug trade in geographically convenient locations for drug distributions like Florida created a business with an approximated profit of $7 billion. In just the first five years after the start of the war on drugs, national budgets began to add up to more than the drug trade generates. (laughs) So kind of defeats the purpose. For example, within the first five years, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, had spent more than, I don't even know how to pronounce this number, $1,024 million alone. And the Drug Task Force section of the FBI had spent over $95 million. So that's God. within the first five years. Des- this has been going on for decades. Yes, this has been going on since the 1980s. So despite the fact that the United States had spent $140 billion on drugs by the year 2000, the DEA has not been able to conclusively say that they have at all been effective in reducing the flow of illegal drugs. Besides spending money on law enforcement agencies to fight the war on drugs, increasing arrests because of laws surrounding drugs have led to massive incarceration rates that continue to plague the country. So... And here we get into mass incarceration. The drug laws that were implemented through the war on drugs actually have increased incarceration rates, which we know, for small-time dealers and addicts rather than the central distributors. New law enforcement agencies were started. Existing ones were expanded, particularly within state governments. And so in order to enforce surmounting new drug laws, because they just kept creating more and more laws and more and more crimes at the federal level, besides the FBI, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, DEA, had been created by Nixon. And that was um, before the war on drugs actually started. So as the drug war launched further into the American consciousness, the government encouraged strict enforcement of these zero tolerance laws. And so that was where you hear that tough on crime zero tolerance laws kind of is all coming from this era. So local law enforcement agencies were essentially bribed with grants and funding from the feds, as well as any assets that were seized from drug-related crimes. Mm -hmm. So basically, those were those forfeiture laws came into place that said, if you arrest a drug dealer and they have, you know, all of these commodities, Mm -hmm. you can seize those and -hmm. you can auction them or you can have them or whatever. And so a lot of times you'll see these big auctions of things that were seized from quote unquote drug dealers houses. So with police forces around the country encouraged to focus on drug crimes, the results, as probably predicted, were the arrests of large amounts of nonviolent drug offenders, most of them suffering from addiction. Uh, In Dade County, Florida, for example, arrests for drug possession had almost doubled in just four years. So between 1985 and uh, 1989. And the national average of drug-related arrests had increased 125% by 1989. (sighs) So despite what many supporters of the drug war claim, that basically the drug enforcement laws are aimed at taking huge kingpins off the street, et cetera, et cetera, the arrest statistics actually prove that's just simply not true. Over 1 million arrests for drug-related crimes occur within the country every year. Supporters of the drug war are likely to argue that those arrests indicate, you know, 1 million drug dealers were taken off the street. 
However, that's a ridiculous thing to think. <laughs> some people really think that I way, know. though. Some people really think that way. And so an actual study showed that in 2005, 80% of those arrested were arrested for nonviolent possession of drug charges, not for sale. So then comes the problem of backed up courtrooms. And I'm just kind of lining this out to show you the process of how the war on drugs has created more and more incarceration. So backed up courtrooms have been considered normal since the beginning of the war on drugs and really has only continued growing worse as the economy has struggled. As a result of all the new drug laws passed by the Reagan administration within a four-year period between 1983 and 1987 led to an increase of drug-related caseloads that averaged about 56% of all court cases being drug-related. Over half of all the cases in courts are drug related. And I would say looking at, you know, just my history. They still are. I would say it's substantially more than that from what I've seen. So uh, this trend obviously continued its growth as the arrests of drug offenses became a key strategy for many law enforcement agencies. And that was really the foundation of the war on drugs. An example in Cook County, which is Chicago, almost three out of four cases were for drug offenses, and the majority of them were for simple possession, which is the lowest charge possible. And so at the end of the decade in 1988, in response to the dramatic increase of drug arrest, Reagan passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which increased the already in place mandatory minimum sentences, as well as permitted the use of the death penalty for certain drug crimes. Insane. I will say the death penalty is not used for drug crimes anymore, um, as we've kind of discussed. But we'll get into how that's still fucked up, too. The 80s were not that long ago. So (laughs) according to the sentencing project in the federal jurisdiction, the mandatory minimum sentence for someone who is convicted for their first drug offense is a sentence of at least five years to 10 years. And that, again, that's a minimum. So it can, of course, go up. And so the sentence can be longer depending on the drug or the person. And what statistics have shown is that um, black persons or African-Americans tend to get higher sentences than Latino or whites. So increasingly harsh sentences imposed on drug offenders has created what we have today, which is obviously overcrowded prisons and exploding corrections budgets. The overcrowded prisons are filled with drug offenders, which are victims of the war on drugs which leaves hardly any room for violent offenders. The first major increase of incarcerated drug offenders we saw in the United States came in the early 20th century as a result of the Harrison Narcotics Act, when it was determined that about half of the inmates at Leavenworth, which is the Kansas Federal Penitentiary, were convicted of drug offenses. While the incarceration rates before the beginning of the war on drugs seemed pretty stagnant for a short while, the launch of the war on drugs had a large impact. And while the inmate population was at an approximate, get this, 300,000 at the start of the war on drugs, it has risen to today's over 2 million people, which has been directly linked to drug convictions. And so that means that the war on drugs is responsible for a huge number of incarcerated inmates in the United States. And according to a study from the Sentencing Project in 2011, over half a million inmates are behind bars because of drug convictions. And that doesn't include crimes that are committed as a result of addiction either. So like stealing, prostitution, things of that nature. And so this was like really all the strong 
get tough on crime rhetoric from the 1970s and 1980s. And so this trend, especially linked to the war on drugs, has resulted in the United States having the highest incarceration rate in the world, an unprecedented in world history, and higher than that of countries with much larger populations, such as China, which exceeds our population by 1 billion people. To put it in an even better perspective, we incarcerate more than all of the countries of the European Union combined, even though their population also exceeds ours. Also, we incarcerate eight people for every one person Germany incarcerates. These statistics show that the United States has an extremely high incarceration rate, while nonviolent drug offenders make up the majority of inmates. At the federal level, drug convictions make up 53% of the inmate population, the largest makeup, while the second largest makeup is those convicted on weapons, explosive, or arson charges, which lies at a mere 13%. So you have the 53% drug crimes, and then the next highest category is 13%, and that's for weapons and arson. And so this all kind of comes from the war on drugs. Just to kind of show where this links to a disproportionate effect on black people, I'm going to give you some facts from the Vera Institute of Justice, and this is from May of 2018, and we'll put this in the show notes. Uh, It's actually a full article. It's really interesting. But just some key takeaways. Black men compromise about 13% of the general population of our country, but about 35% of those incarcerated. Wow. One in three black men born today can expect to be incarcerated in his lifetime compared to one in six Latino men and one in 17 white men. One in 18 black women born in 2001 is likely to be incarcerated sometime in her life, compared to one in 45 Latina women and one in 111 white women. Black people are incarcerated in state prisons at a rate of 5.1 times greater than that of white people. 44% of incarcerated women are black, although black women make up about, again, 13% of the female U.S. population. In 2016, a police accountability task force in Chicago found that police searched black and Latino drivers four times as often as white drivers. However, police found contraband on white drivers twice as often as black and Latino drivers. Wow, 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 wow. So those are just some statistics that I wanted to bring in because it's so difficult to for me to not see how intertwined race and the criminal justice system is. And as we've talked about before, and we have some really good guests coming up on some future episodes that are going to talk to this about this a little bit more in depth. So I don't want to go into it too much because we have some like real experts on the subject Mm -hmm. coming in, but it's, it's impossible to talk about criminal justice reform without being open to and seeing that it disproportionately affects one race over another. Right. So, and I know you actually have some facts on how that works with the death penalty. I got this information from Death Penalty Information Center, and I will plug it in the show notes as well. It is the ways that race can affect death sentencing. So one way is the race of the victim. So nationally, around 75% of murder victims in cases resulting in execution have been white, even though nationally, only 50% of murder victims are white. In 1990... Examination of the death penalty sentencing conducted by the United States General Accounting Office noted that in 82% of studies, race of the victim was found to influence the likelihood of being charged with a capital murder or receiving the death penalty. 
So those who murdered whites were more likely to be sentenced to death than those who murdered black people. In fact, like really carries from old slavery rules. Right. In fact, race of victim disparities have been found in every state that does the death penalty. Yeah. Another way is the race of the defendant. According to a recently updated study by Professor Catherine Beckett of the University of Washington, jurors in Washington were four and one half times more likely to impose a sentence of death when the defendant was black. Another way is the race of the jurors. A Dallas Morning News review of trials in that jurisdiction found that in a two-year study of over 100 felony cases in Dallas County, the prosecutors dismissed blacks from the jury twice as often as whites, even when the newspaper compared similar jurors who had expressed opinions about the criminal justice system. Go ahead. I was going to say, and I don't know if we've talked about this on the show before, but there's a Supreme Court case called Batson versus Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And when you are selecting a jury, if you suspect that the other side is striking people for racial reasons, you raise a Batson versus Kentucky objection. And all they have to do is give a race neutral reason or a, mm-hmm. if it's a gender thing, a gender neutral reason for why they are striking them, which really could be anything. So it really doesn't it, it was meant to prevent racist discrimination and jury selection but um obviously it's very easy to get around so yeah so the black jurors were obviously excused at a much higher rate than the whites yeah for probably bs reasons of jurors who said that either they or someone close to them had a bad experience with police or in the courts prosecutors struck a hundred percent of the blacks and only 39 percent of the whites mm-hmm. speaking of prosecutors there's another factor the race of the prosecutor Whenever and wherever capital punishment is authorized by law, the decision whether or not to seek the death sentence in particular cases is left to the discretion of the prosecutor. Surveys of prosecutors found a striking lack of diversity. For example, a 1998 examination of chief district attorneys in states with the death penalty found that nearly 98% are white, 1% are black, and 1% are Hispanic. According to a study done by Women's Donor Network, 95% of elected prosecutors in the U.S. are white, and 79% of those prosecutors are white men. An analysis by the Death Penalty Information Center of that study further shows that in states that have the death penalty, 94.5% of elected prosecutors are white. In nine penalty states, 100% of the prosecutors are white. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, it's like modern-day lynching, and I think you had that map. Yes, it shows the Bible Belt, the South, and if you had the map of death penalty executions and compare it to lynchings that are on record, they overlap. Yeah. We're, we're still lynching people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's why that book by Michelle Alexander is so important because she each chapter she lays out how we transitioned and really, and that's why she calls it the new Jim Crow because the criminal justice laws that are present today are use the Jim Crow. And one of the, um, you know, one of the major points she talks about is how once you have a felony conviction on your record or you're, you're previously charged with a crime, you are disenfranchised in many ways. You can be discriminated against for housing, for voting, for uh, loans, for banking, for, mm-hmm. you know, any of that. And which is where all of the things that the Jim Crow laws were to prevent black people from voting, from getting housing, mm-hmm. from moving into certain areas. There was redlining when it came to real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she really lays that transition out nicely. So for Black History Month, go out and buy a copy of The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. We're about to. So we got to go.
<laughs> gotta go buy the new anniversary edition so uh 10 year anniversary I'm really excited to see any updated facts or studies she puts in there and we will put a link to that in the notes as well yeah so anyway tell all your friends about it yeah they probably don't know also educate yourselves on some things that are going on we will bring you some more black history next week and we will see you next time on gin and justice bye all editing for Gin and Justice done by Gin and Justice Podcast. Artwork by Justin Cardone. Photography by Kimber Schwakey. We'll see you next time on Gin and Justice.